Welcome to What's So Funny, a comedy podcast where we talk about some of the most influential and controversial comedians from the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Sit back, relax, and get ready to laugh. Here's your host, Dave Swanson. Hi, welcome back to What's So Funny. I'm Dave Schwenson, and today I'm joined by two of my favorite co-hosts, Logan Rashaw and Kelly Thulis. How are you guys? Hey, Great. It's good to be back yeah. on the show, Dave. Yeah, it's good to have you here. I haven't seen you in a while, Logan. What's going on? Uh, you know, not much. Just uh, postponing festivals left and right. Uh, in the meantime, <laughs> That's always a joy, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? No, but in the meantime, I put together a, a small book of short stories. It's called Albert Cat Moo. C-A-T-M-U-S, and it's just a bunch of funny stories and essays that you can find on Amazon. Really? little uh, shameless plug there. Kelly, what's going on with you? Hey, hey, it's good to be here. Well, first of all, I just want to bring up, in case someone hasn't listened to us in a while, we have changed our format a little bit from what you remember from last season of What's So Funny. Instead of playing uh, comedy albums, what we do now is we pick out a classic comedian from whenever, the 50s, 60s, 70s, and we talk about that comedian and their life and their work and their comedy and their influences. and Yeah, we, and we focus in on some of the more popular albums. And sort and of no, how Notoriety. Was, yeah, <laughs> their yeah. scandals. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll talk about whatever. <laughs> and we've got a good one to uh, kick us off today. Is uh, ready for this? Okay, family listeners, are you ready for this? <laughs> Red Fox. Oh, I'm yeah. So talk about Innovator. About yeah. <laughs> I... I like Red Fox. I've always liked his comedy. And then I was like, you know what? I'm going to pick up a biography, like find out what his like his early life was like. And I could not put it down. He is oh, yeah. one of the most fascinating people that we've probably talked about. And I think I say that about everyone we talk about, but I really mean it for Red Fox. He's got quite a story. Yeah, I, I also, I, I knew nothing about his, his background or his personal life. I just knew him from Sanford and Son and a couple of his albums. And yeah, it's just incredibly interesting. Well, you know, I want to say I think most of the listeners will know him from Sanford and Son. Before that, you know, he's a stand-up comedian, a little bit obscure, back in the 50s and 60s, getting more and more popular. But when he hit that TV sitcom Sanford and Son, and when was that? That was like the early 70s? Yeah, early 70s. That came out, and that was a massive hit. So all of a sudden, he was a household name. And before that... The name Red Fox meant you put the comedy material in a brown envelope and hid it somewhere <laughs> so nobody knew you had his albums. Yeah, it's crazy that he broke through mainstream through Sanford and Son, but he had this entire like adult-oriented comedy career beforehand. He came out of St. Louis and, uh, you know, poor, dirt poor. Uh, he was actually trying to make it as a musician, I think, a singer and a dancer. Yeah, he's got, uh, I think, five singles that were put out a while before he got into really being a comedian. But he was trying to be like a blues singer. Like you said, he grew up in St. Louis, but his dad left, then his mom moved to Chicago so she could raise money for the family and send it back to him and his brother who were living with their grandmother. Early on, he went to boarding school and got kicked out of that, went back to live with his grandma, didn't go great. She eventually shipped him off to Chicago to live with his mom, and there he started hanging out with rougher crowds and started a little washtub band, and they went to New York to try and make it big. I think the biggest thing I saw on their resume was they did Major Bo's original Amateur Hour. Oh, that was popular. Under the name, the uh, the Jump Swinging Six. <laughs> and yeah. they did not do great. 
Uh, but that's why he became a comedian instead yeah. of a singer and a dancer. I also remember hearing one time, he got kicked out of a school on the very first day because he threw a book at the teacher. Yeah, he was mm-hmm. expelled. He was expelled. And that's yeah. actually what led him into show business because he was just sort of like a kid wandering the streets after getting expelled. He was in fifth grade. He just wandered into a theater called the Plantation House and, and saw the comedians in there. And that's sort of when he discovered and fell in love with show business. Well, I know he went up to, wound up at the, uh, in Harlem, in New York City, up there on 125th Street. And Harlem was known for the black, just the entertainment industry. And they were just so, I mean, just amazing musicians and singers and dancers and comedians. And that's where Red Fox really started to put his act together. He worked up there in a restaurant. He was, he was known as the funniest dishwasher, I think, in Harlem. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's what Malcolm X said about him. Yeah, his friend, like Malcolm X. Okay, now the civil rights, I mean, Malcolm X is a legendary figure, but he and Red Fox were like best friends. As kids, yeah. They were best friends, and I guess they looked similar. So they had like a team nickname where Red was known as Chicago Red, and Malcolm was known as Detroit Red. Right. And people thought they were brothers. See, and I had heard it was a little bit different. I had heard Malcolm X was called Big Red, and Red Fox was called Red Fox because they thought he was clever. So that's kind of where that came from. I don't know. A lot of rumors, a lot of legends. Tall Red Fox, for sure. Malcolm X, his real name was Malcolm Little. And, of course, Red Fox, his real name was John John Sanford. John Sanford. Okay. And his brother's name was Fred Sanford, which is what we're going to talk about when we get to uh, Sanford and Son. One was Detroit Red, and the other was Chicago Red. And uh, they did some illegal activities together. (laughs) Yeah, they were, like, running small crimes and eventually... uh, Red Fox wanted to kind of branch away once he got into harder crimes because he wanted to have a showbiz career and he was worried about that derailing it. Yeah, they used to uh, they used to steal suits from the laundromat and sell them on the building on the roof <laughs> where they were sleeping. And uh, but yeah, I think uh, Malcolm Little got into some real trouble. He got like a ten year prison term or something, and Red Fox avoided that. That seems to be kind of Red Fox's. Uh thing though because there, I mean there was in my research there was a couple times where even it, when he was with the trio in that band that there was named the Bonbons to get to Harlem they were on a train that they hopped and then yeah, they, they were got hopping caught. Free trains. yeah yeah <laughs> and they like survived in an it was an onion car that they specifically lived in for three days and just ate onions and <laughs> his bandmates got caught but he didn't so his bandmates ended up arrested he like jumped in the Hudson or something and made it to New York I so it just sort of seems that's a pattern. Like he's just lucky in that regards, or he he seems to be missing arrestment all the time. He was always definitely like near crime. Yeah, yeah, definitely. always on the outskirts or doing some of the petty stuff himself. <laughs> but you know, then he got into doing stand-up comedy. Red Fox got famous, I guess you could say, from doing these party albums. Logan and Kelly. I mean, have you ever really listened to a party album? And I'll answer that question myself. No. And it was the kind of thing when I look back and imagine it, it was, you know, very X-rated, dirty Mm -hmm. records. And I always think about the adults, maybe in the 50s or the 60s, you see the stereotype pictures, you know, like, uh, you know, they get the Manhattans in their hand or old fashions with a cherry and a drink and a cigarette. The kids are in bed and mom and dad sneak down the basement and they put on these party albums, which were just nothing but dirty jokes, in your face, dirty jokes. And that's what Red Fox was known for. Yeah, he did like 40 of them. 
Yeah, I mean, it was ridiculous. It's really like impossible to keep track of how many there were because that first label he was on just kept re-releasing the same stuff over and over or like pairing different tracks that they've already released onto like a new album and calling it something new. But I remember being a kid and going to grade school and the, the bad kids, not like you, Logan or Kelly or, or me, we're the good kids. Of course. Uh, the, the bad <laughs> kids who didn't really, they were coming into school telling these dirty jokes when you were like in grade school. Someone would tell you a dirty joke like in, the, in the bathroom, in the hallway. And they're basically telling Red Fox jokes. Oh, that yeah. They, yeah. They must have heard from their parents or their grandparents or someone who had these albums telling these dirty jokes. I mean, that's um, kind of the thing with the party records, too. It's not normal stand-up in the sense that it's some guy or guy or girl telling you like their life story and trying to make it funny or giving you their personality. These are just jokes. It yes. is yeah, story joke, one-liner maybe some audience interaction, but you don't know who Red Fox is as a person when you listen to these. You no. just know he's funny. He's more known for you know breaking the, the, the color barrier a lot, like Dick Gregory, getting up in front of a white audience, but he came out of that, what they called the Chitlin circuit. And you know the white comics back in the 20s, 30s, 40s, they were all doing the same act. Oh, I'm sure. It's probably a lot of like what we would call today street jokes. Yes. So these old... Dirty, <laughs> as dirty jokes as you could possibly get. I think they were all kind of saying it. And I think Red Fox just said them better than the others. Mm-hmm. I don't know. His albums and, just sold like crazy. Yeah, and there were a lot to sell. I think between 56 and 58, there were what, like 14 full albums. But then there were also just tons of EPs and singles that were put out in that same two-year gap. I think it's really interesting, too, if we're looking just at the party albums on a whole and why they were so popular. I mean, if you look at 1956, the the most popular film that year was The Ten Commandments, which is this epic <laughs> Bible <laughs> story. Elvis was just sort of taking off and was causing all sorts of controversy because he was too risque. And then it's like at the underground, you had Red Fox telling these like insanely dirty jokes. You know, mainstream culture was, was just so um, tame at yeah, the time. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely underground, too, because you didn't see these albums on the shelves. You had to hear about it from someone who really knew what was up, and then you had to go to the record store and ask them for it, and they pull it out in a paper bag from behind the counter. It was illegal to sell them. Yeah, they were worried about indecency laws. Well, it was, I mean, you know know your history, it's like the Eisenhower era in the 50s, and the TV shows like Ozzy and Harriet and Father Knows Best, and Mm -hmm. all those wholesome American shows, and everybody's happy in the suburbs and all this. But no, there was an underground scene and he was popular, and there was an audience for him. Yeah. Well, it's the same as any, I mean, comedy during any time. There's a different tastes and different styles, and no matter who you are or what kind of jokes you tell, there is an audience for you out there. That's this for is, sure. Yeah, yeah. And, and this, is, this was Red Fox's audience, and he, he nailed it. He found it somehow <laughs> and, and really, like, just took off with it. Yeah, I think some of the appeal was you were all kind of like listening in on something you weren't supposed to hear. Yeah, I know when he first got his first album deal, he was hesitant to do this because he didn't want to give up his material. The audience wouldn't come see his live shows anymore, but they sold something like 250,000 copies or something of his <laughs> yeah, first turns album. Out he and had that was, plenty that of was material. Laugh of, that was Laugh of the Party, Volume 1, right? That was his first album. Yeah, Laugh of okay. the Party was, was the first. first and mm-hmm. can we talk about how that album sounds? Like, you both listen yeah. to it, I think. And <laughs> it's not high quality. They put no. a reel-to-reel recorder in the back of the club and just recorded whatever they could. So it doesn't sound pleasant. 
Like, no. It is just like if you had your phone recording from the back of a comedy club. It's not high quality. And I think if I remember correctly, listening to that album, it seems like there, there were a lot of cuts. He would tell a joke and then cut, tell a joke, cut. You know, it wasn't a lot of room audience play to it. It was made as cheaply as possible so they could churn it. And they just kept doing that with them. But there was so much material that it was just funny. And if you can get through that, it didn't sound great. There's good stuff there. You know, it, it was a, a popular thing to do, all these party albums. It wasn't just Red Fox. There was a whole circuit of comics coming out with this stuff. But uh, he outlasted everybody and, again, mm-hmm. moved on to become a star because he continued into the night. The thing that amazes me, here's what I'm going to say. These comedy albums, these party albums, it was underground. You had to buy it in brown paper bags in the record store. Red Fox had a temper. He yes. always wanted his fair share of the money. Okay, he's a businessman. I shouldn't say he had a temper. He wanted his money. Show me the money. Mm-hmm. And he felt the guy who was selling these albums was making a ton of money and he wasn't sharing it all the way. So he got out of his contract. He said, that's it. He made such a stink about it, the guy let him out of his contract. And then he signed with Frank Sinatra's record label. Yeah, Loma Records. Well, he saw Red Fox and he signed him. Frank Sinatra signing Red Fox? I know. That's crazy. <laughs> so they actually, uh, he wanted to get out of his record label, but they wouldn't let him out at first. He actually took him to court for a few years when he had about two years left. And they had a long two-year court battle where he wanted to be released from his record contract. He said they owed him money and he wanted the masters to all the recordings they had. And after two years, the court found that he actually owed the record company money. <laughs> they could definitely, they had all of the rights to the masters, and he now had to do two more years with them oh, to make wow. up for the time he wasn't recording during the lawsuit. Uh, and then that's when Sinatra came around, and suddenly they were really cool with letting him go. Yeah. You know, well, that's also a sort of a theme in his life as well. He he ends up in a similar dilemma with other other companies and other producers later on. Yeah, especially when we got into television. It seemed to yeah, be a pattern. Yeah. But I, I will say, the one I wanted to talk about the album a little bit is, came out in like 1967, 68, 68? you know, the, 68, yeah. Foxadelic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Another great one. Uh-huh. I mean, that was around the time of what, all the psychedelic music and the hippies and all that kind of stuff. It's a Foxadelic. I thought it was a great title. And, um... <laughs> Hi, this is comedian and writer, and let's be honest, I do a lot of things. This is Dean Archipotus, the host of Whiskey Business, the podcast not so much about whiskey as it is one with whiskey. Yes, we drink and talk about whiskey, but we do so much more with so many interesting people. For example, we talk to comedians like Greg Warren. You know, I don't want to brag, but let's just say I can walk into a Red Lobster and get whatever. You know, I think the pause right there is probably more important than the word. Amazing athletes like boxing champion Buster Douglas. When a fighter's down and he's looking for his mouthpiece instead of trying to get up. That's when I knew it was over. Yeah, Yeah. right? And, yes, Bigfoot chasers. Do you believe in Bigfoot? And if so, does he really eat beef jerky? (laughs) The Bigfoot thing is people have seen these, and and I've seen a lot of compelling evidence about it. It's Whiskey Business with Dino Chipotas. Join us for what we call a good conversation with a good pour. You really can't ask for much more than that, can you, people? Check us out at whiskeybusinesspod.com, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. But he finally had an album that had some decent quality to it. It does not sound bad. Yeah, it's Mm -hmm. recorded in Vegas. It sounds great. It's got some money behind it. And I think it's one of his first performances in front of a white audience. Even when I compare it to, like, the party albums. The party albums, to me, are very basic, just dirty jokes, one after another, after another, after another, each one raunchier than the one before. In this one, it's kind of like he gave some of this material some thought. 
<laughs> yeah, it's definitely more like a traditional stand-up style. Still like very heavy with innuendo and all that. Yeah, but innuendo it's not and right jokes. in your face. Yeah. <laughs> but he actually has one or two jokes on it that he could possibly have said on television. <laughs> Which he even jokes about that. He's like, oh, yeah. this one's for the television. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. He also started doing some films. What was that one? Cotton Goes to Harlem, he did? Yeah, Ozzy Davis's some... film. Okay, yes. That's the film that, that the producers of Sanford and Son saw him in. That's the one? From my knowledge, yeah. That's the one that, that really, he stood out. He, he didn't have a huge role in that, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. No, he was like was... a supporting actor in it. Yeah. But he like yeah, stood but... out from the rest. Mm-hmm. When they decided to do Sanford and Son, one of the producers or whatever, they saw him. And they said, oh my gosh, that's the guy for this show. And it became, again, I mean, you think back at the times, 1970, there were not very many black people on television at that time, you know? I mean, Bill Cosby broke the color barrier as being one of the first leads, a black man having a lead on a primetime show with I Spy. Mm -hmm. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, Red Fox came along and now the whole show, you know, were, were, I want to say, you know, black actors, you know, every Damon Wilson, Sanford and Son, you know, Fred Sanford. And that was Breakthrough. That was a big deal. Yeah, I don't even think they had a like a white actor on the show until about like three or four episodes into uh-uh. it. And you know, I mean, the other time, you know, the shows that came after, like Good Times, and mm-hmm. uh, the Jeffersons, they were all after this. I mean, Red Fox was a groundbreaker, and they picked him to because it could have gone either way. You know, the fun thing about Sanford and Son that's based on an old British sitcom called Steptoe and Son, and it'd been around about ten years before. Same format. They called them ragmen rather than trash garbage men, <laughs> you know, like junk guys. This was sort of like Norman Lear's project to co- that he came up with after All in the Family. So this was his big follow-up. Mm-hmm. And the entire part, like point of casting it was to find a pair of actors who would have a good chemistry. And, and they, they tried did. all sorts of different like races and nationalities and backgrounds. And then finally, once they found Red Fox, they were like, this is going to work. Uh, when I say it was a groundbreaker, you know, he brought in a lot of his friends from the black entertainment Chitlin circuit. He brought them onto his primetime NBC show to play, you know, characters like Lawanda, Lawanda Page, who played what Aunt Esther. Yeah. Yeah, he gave her a big breakthrough that way. Yeah. But even yeah. people who just had one line, he would find someone he worked with in the past that wanted to get on television. He'd say, hey, can you say a line? We'll bring you in. Lawanda Page, they grew up together. They were childhood friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were from back in the early days together. Yes. She's so I watched a documentary, and she just kept saying, she's like, oh, he was a rascal. He was a rascal. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, what a wonderful, from a woman who's known him his entire life, like, what a wonderful way of describing him. Because he really was. Like, even though he was, at, even at the height of his success here, he still he had a little bit of a gambling problem, and he had some some anger issues. Like, yeah, they, they said that you never really knew which red you were going to get on set from day to day. And the thing is, he was, you know, I'll say he was loyal to his friend. He may not have very been loyal so. to his three wives, but uh, he was... Yeah, definitely he was loyal very, to his friends, at least. <laughs> yeah, his friends, the ones he did the, the Chitlin circuit with and the comedians mm-hmm. and the entertainers and stuff. I mean, he helped them out all he could. But at the same time, he's one of these guys, again, he's looking out for himself. He's like, something's not right here. Sanford's son is this huge hit. It's making all this money for all the producers and everyone, but where's his cut? Mm-hmm. And that, like his early record deals, that became an issue. And all of a sudden, he was not going to work anymore. He wasn't going to show up and film any more shows. He wanted a cut of the money. 
And they were saying, we're paying you well, take it or leave it. And he says, I'll leave it. He left that show. He left it. It was a big hit show. And he walked away from it. Yeah, he had a weird relationship with the character of Fred Sanford, too, because he still wanted to do his club act where he could be dirty, but he was getting all these new audience members who were expecting like a happy-go-lucky sitcom star. And at some shows, like people would walk out and he'd say, listen, I'm sorry, the name of the Marquise is Red Fox, not Fred Sanford. Did we mention this? That was named after, he wanted it to be named after his brother, Fred Sanford, and which is very interesting. I'm sure that added a lot of complexity to the character for him as well. Well, it did. And here's something interesting. His father's name yeah. was Fred Sanford, and his older brother was Fred Sanford Jr. And he insists that Fred Sanford come from, be in honor of his brother, not his father, because right. his father and left his him. brother had passed away by that yes. point as well. Yeah. So I'm sure that just sort of added uh, an, an odd level to his relationship with the character. And then you add on top of it this dispute over salary. And then you add on to it that he's not able to do his act that he loves the same way. And, you know, it just ends up being a real struggle, I'm sure. Yeah, well, he still did his act. Now, I know I saw yeah, that he well, still yeah, did it. People just weren't it, happy when they showed yeah, up. Yeah, they just weren't happy when they showed up. Red Fox just exploded in the early 70s. He was just, he was a major star and making millions of dollars and everything he'd worked like decades to achieve. Yeah, he did network television. I think I even saw a clip of him doing a show like the Midnight Special or a concert, rock concert show, something like that. And he had to do five minutes clean, relatively clean. But when he did, and he loved Las Vegas, and he loved gambling, he loved the whole thing. And when he went out there, he was—he didn't change. He was triple X rated, and if you didn't like it, he said at the end, if you were disappointed, I really don't care. Yeah, I think Vegas <laughs> he is definitely said it where he words. belonged. <laughs> if you don't like it, tough is kind of his, uh, his motto on a lot of things. Yeah, if you don't like it, lump it. Mm-hmm. I think that was his attitude. And really, uh, I mean, NBC made him a star. Sanford yes. and Son, and was it Norman Lear? The whole mm-hmm. thing. But again, he was like, no, you're not treating me fair. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to walk out. And he did that. They made him come back from his contract. Once it was, the contract was up, he left. And he went over to ABC, a rival network. And he got a variety show, the Red Fox show. And that didn't do as well. It got canceled. Matter of fact, he, I, think some, I think he's the only person, leading man or whatever you want to call it, to have three starring shows on three rival networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC. Because he came back, I think, to NBC and did a show called Sanford. At the end of his career, at the end of his life, he had another sitcom called, I think, The Royal Family. The Royal Family. Yeah, the Royal yeah, Family. Yeah, which was that the, might have started like Della Reese yes. was with that. That actually, mm-hmm. it was it was created by Eddie Murphy. They came up with it on the set of Harlem Nights. It was just Red and and Della Reese were kind of riffing on on something, and Eddie just said, "This is going to be a sitcom." And they kind of were like, oh, okay, yeah. And uh, he went to his trailer and he came back. So the legend goes, anyways. He went to his, Eddie Murphy went to his trailer that moment and came back with, like, you know, an outline of a pilot. And he was like, no, 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 this is going to be something. And, you know, sure enough, however long later, it was actually, it was happening. And it was, they got one season in. I'm not sure if they recorded an entire season or what, but this was the, the end for Red. This is where he ended up passing away, was on set of this show. Yeah, they just finished, what, rehearsing a scene or filming a scene, whatever Rehearsed it was? Rehearsed a scene, and he did an interview with uh, Entertainment Tonight. Yeah, and the sad the sad and ironic thing is, so if uh, there's any youngsters out there who hadn't seen Sanford and Son, the notorious 
joke in it was uh, he would fake a heart attack and and call out to his his wife Elizabeth who had passed away and you know is I'm any, coming Elizabeth yeah, I'm coming <laughs> it's like any any time he wasn't getting his way he would he would end up throwing this thing and that this was is the, the big, big one yeah that was that was the act that was the <laughs> shtick that was the thing that that show was like so well known for and then he had a real heart attack and every the cast and crew on the royal family recognized it as his shtick from Sanford and Son and literally laughed as he died. They just yes. like watched him laughing because it was they thought he was faking a heart attack as he had done a yes. hundred thousand times before. And then he f- Pass, you know, he dies of a heart attack, and they're all sitting there looking at him like they expect him to stand up again. Yeah, his like last words were like, "Oh, give me a break!" You know, I mean, it's even as he's like passing, <laughs> he's he's saying these things that just sound wildly familiar to what he would do on the set of Sanford and Sons. So yeah, just I mean, just crazy, so crazy. That was it. But you know, it's it's uh, funny you mentioned that show was you said it might have been produced by Eddie Murphy I believe or so. created created by what, Eddie. created by Eddie yeah. Murphy. Eddie Murphy was a big fan. Of Red Fox, and you know, when I look back at Red Fox's career, and again, start with the party albums. I don't really hear anything original. All right, I just don't. To me, he's just repeating a bunch of dirty jokes. However, it's his personality, the way he sells it, the way he does it, and how he broke into the mainstream. Again, from the Chitlin Circuit to you know Las Vegas. By opening these doors, censorship and everything else, it allowed people like Richard Pryor. Okay, Richard Pryor, even George Carlin, but mm-hmm. Eddie Murphy, you know, Eddie Murphy, you look back at his stuff from the 70s, his specials. I mean, he was just as X-rated as Red Fox. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, Richard Pryor especially, I mean, they were pretty good friends for a lot of Red's life. And he was sort of like a mentor to Richard Pryor. And they would party together all the time. But you could hear that sort of like personality of Red Fox coming through when Richard Pryor speaks even though his comedy was so different, like there's still some of that Red Fox personality in there. Like almost like teasing the audience, like I'm saying this anyway, whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm. This is what's happening. So uh, yeah, so he was a big influence. And I even think uh, like uh, Chris Rock and you know, and many Sinbad, of the other comedians. Sure. Sinbad. And, uh, and it's amazing because you, know, you do mention Sinbad and he does say Red Fox was an influence and Sinbad is so clean. Yeah. <laughs> his, his material compared Absolutely. to Red Fox. Oh, sure. So I think it is just a lot of the attitude and playing with the crowd. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and when you listen to Red Fox's comedy, he does crowd work. If someone doesn't laugh or something, he'll say something. He points them out mm-hmm. or, you know, he yeah, calls he's them very ugly. in the moment <laughs> on every album. And I think one of the other things that was so inspirational about him is, as we mentioned before, he was like, it's my way, take it or leave it. You know, this is what we're doing. And to have that such a clear... I guess, vision or or authenticity, it means so much. It's why his albums, like you said, they're not all that original, but it stands up and stands the test of time because it's just so refreshing to always hear that, you know, that boldness in his own personality. And I think it meant a lot, especially breaking through the color barrier of that time. It meant a lot to have him just be like, no, I'm not doing this. I mean, one of the things, too, when he was doing those, um, the Chitlin Circuit and such, and he couldn't perform in front of white audiences, there was this sort of thing where you could perform in front of a white audience if you did blackface. And he was like, absolutely not. Like, there's no way. I don't care what it means for my career. I'm not doing that. And, and so to have that sort of like, I've got clear cut boundaries. I know what I deserve. I know what I want. 
that is to so many comedians who are being held back during that time. That meant everything, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, he stuck to his guns. He knew mm-hmm. who he was and what he was doing. And, you know, I don't think he took a lot of nonsense from people. No, absolutely not. He would also, he got into some trouble with the IRS, especially later on in life. But they would, in the documentary I watched, they interviewed his lawyer. And he was like, oh, yeah, no, he would file his taxes every year. He just decided he would never send in a check. Yeah, he just <laughs> like, would pay it. You know, he just did what he wanted. Mm-hmm. And they took everything back. Oh, yeah, they did take everything. Yeah. They took everything he had. You know, he lost his house, his cars. He had a diamond watch that was gifted to him from Elvis that they took. Wow, Wow, not the Elvis. I mean, my gosh. No, jeez, yeah. And then he got some of it back, but the watch was auctioned off to pay off the taxes. When he died in Los Angeles, Eddie Murphy actually shipped his body back to Las Vegas and paid for the entire funeral. That is so crazy. I, I had no idea of that. I mean, that just really speaks to what you know, how much of a fan and admirer Eddie Murphy was of Red Fox, or how respected, I should say. Yeah. How much respect he had for him. Eddie Murphy just did it up as a great farewell to the great Red Fox. So that's wonderful. Unreal. Well, yeah, you know, it wasn't an easy life, but he did it his way, like Frank Sinatra. There you go. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's (laughs) what he saw. (laughs) You know, we look at nowadays, you can pretty much think you can hear everything in a club, but everything goes in cycles, as far as I'm concerned, like, you know, comedy. I mean, everything's going to come around again. See, Red Fox was so shocking. And then I'll look at someone like Howard Stern when Mm. he came out. Okay, mm-hmm. and who are some of the other shock jocks at that time? But they got huge because they were saying all this stuff that people weren't saying out loud anymore. They had been right. in the 60s or whatever. Then it kind of went underground. These guys came back. And I was thinking also about the kind of uh, humor when I was listening to Red Fox. And it made a big comeback in the 90s, Andrew Dice Clay. Oh, yeah, yep. yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh-huh. As far as I'm concerned, he was doing Red Fox's act. Mm-hmm. You listen to some of these old party records with Red Fox, and he's doing these lyrics, you know, the Hickory Dickory Dock, and I won't say anymore, mm. but he does. <laughs> okay. And then you look at Andrew Dice Clay standing on stage in the 90s or whenever he right. was big, and he's Hickory Dickory Dock, and he's yeah. doing all the same. It's the same thing, but it's a whole new generation. It's like two or three generations removed from the Red Fox crowd. And to them, this is all new. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. So what, that means probably we got 10 more years before we see the next rendition of Red Fox, right? All right, so we can start yeah. writing yeah. our material right now. Come on. <laughs> Somewhere out there is a 10-year-old that's going to be the filthiest comedian of all time. <laughs> yes, yes. Can you believe it? That's what's coming up. That's yeah. the prediction on this <laughs> show. You heard it right here. He's already got some party TikTok following is going on. <laughs> probably. <laughs> All right, well, listen, I'm going to sign off here because I've had too much fun and I don't want to get too carried away with this. I want to save some more fun for the next time we talk. So I'm going to say goodbye to Logan. All right, Kelly and Dave, it was great talking with both of you. It was always good to talk with you. And Kelly, great great to have you here. We had a fun time, didn't we? Yeah, this was great. Okay, I just want to make sure you're happy signing off. (laughs) Like our listeners. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to sign off. I'm Dave Schwenson. And thank you for listening to What's So Funny. Until we come back, keep laughing. What's So Funny is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers, Joan Andrews and Michael DeLoya. Producer, Sarah Wilgroup. And audio engineer, Eric Coltnow. 
Anne-Marie Kelly. Wild Precious Life is a podcast about dreaming big, digging in and connecting across distance, division, and loss. In each episode, I talk with prize-winning writers, musicians, and wanderers who remind all of us how we can make the most of the time we have. So meet me here. Let's walk and talk and dream and discover what it means to be wild, precious, and brave. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.